Well, good morning, church. I hope that you are ready for a word. I hope you've been blessed by the service so far. Listen, before we get into our topic today and we open up God's word, let me just say something that is so important for you to hear. God loves you. I want you to type that in the comments. God loves me. Type that in the comments. I want us to be drowning, wrapped up, tied up, tangled up in the love of God. I felt as though before we get into our text today, that it was important for someone to hear that. If you haven't heard that this week, if you haven't meditated and pondered and thought upon it, God loves you. And God is so in love with you that God sacrificed his son Jesus so that you may live, so that you may be redeemed, so that you can experience the flourishing, abundant life that God intends. Why don't we give God thanks and praise right now as we bow our heads and enter into this preaching moment. God, we thank you for your love. And in response to your love, your unconditional love, your love that never runs out, God, we love you back. And we give full allegiance, full commitment, our full selves to you. I pray for those, God, who are unsure about the love of God, who are unsure if you truly love them in the way that we know that you do, the way that the scriptures reveal to us that you do. God, I pray that it's revealed to them afresh today. I pray that they would fall into that love, drown in that love, be consumed by that love, and may it change every part of our lives. God, as we enter into the preaching moment, we know there can't be a fire in anyone's place if there is an iceberg behind this cyber pulpit. So God, would you light me on fire that I may burn for you, burn for your truth and your justice. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer in whom I trust. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go to Daniel chapter three in the middle of the Old Testament, the book of Daniel chapter three. Very familiar story. We're going to start in verses 16 through 18. Daniel chapter three, verses 16 through 18. And the word of God says, and you can see it on the screen. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. I love this passage so much. I had to pull from the message translation, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. And I want to read that paraphrase if you give me the liberty to. Eugene Peterson puts it like this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered King Nebuchadnezzar, your threat means nothing to us. If you throw us into the fire, the God we serve can rescue us from your roaring furnace and anything else you might cook up, O king. But even if he doesn't, it wouldn't make a bit of difference, O king. We still wouldn't serve your gods or worship the golden statue you created. When we talk about our history and when we talk about this time as we close out black history month today is the last day of black history month there is a particular figure that i don't believe we give a lot of attention to that i want to highlight today one of the most criminally understudied underrepresented figures you can see her image on my shirt this is someone who i want you to remember her name this is a worship of her i recognize she's a human being just like all of us but I absolutely love the example and I love the mission and message and life of Ida B. Wells Barnett. I've been going through over the past few weeks, a few 
black history figures that maybe you didn't know or maybe you should be exposed to. And Ida B. Wells is one of those that the history books, for some reason, have omitted. Ida B. Wells was a prominent journalist and activist and researcher, and she used her words to bring about change. That's probably why I have such an affinity for her in my heart. And in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, she battled against sexism and racism and specifically the violence of lynching. Now, we know that today we talk much about lynching because of the Equal Justice Initiative and Brian Stevenson and all these memorials in the city of Montgomery. And that's good and helpful. But you have to understand that at the turn of the century, most people were not talking about lynching. But Ida B. Wells changed that narrative. By the time she turned 25, she was the co-owner and editor of the Memphis Free Speech and Headline. It was a platform that she used to speak out against racial inequality and injustice. Over the course of her years, she researched over 700 lynchings. Think about that, over 700 lynchings. There are many powerful statements and sentiments that she expressed that I can pull from. There's one quote in particular that resonates in my heart. It's one of my favorite quotes. She said, when in response to the idea and the question, why do you push against lynching? Why do you push against racial injustice and systemic oppression, considering that it could cost you your life? She said this, she said, burning and torture here lasts but a little while. But if I die with a lie on my soul, I shall be tortured forever. If I die with a lie on my soul, I'll be tortured forever. The reason I love this quote so much is because for Ida B. Wells, the threat of standing before the omnipotent one was greater than the threat of standing even before her oppressors. She was more concerned with fearing God than fearing people. She was more concerned with fearing the divine than feeling the people, fearing the people who could hurt her. She showed and displayed this uncommon courage, but the truth is, church, this is the whole beauty of Black History Month. This type of boldness is in the bones of our faith. It may be uncommon courage to us, but it is not uncommon to the history of our faith and our culture. As a matter of fact, what Ida B. Wells displays is at the core of who we are. Two weeks ago on PBS, there was a historian named Dr. Henry Louis Gates who released a documentary, the latest in his series of documentaries on the African-American experience. And it's called The Black Church, Our Story, Our Song. And it chronicles over 400 years plus of black Christian tradition in the American context. I encourage you to go watch it. It's only four hours. It has some limitations. It has some things that probably should have been added in, some things that were left out that they shouldn't have left out. I have so many critiques, but here's the thing that we can say definitively. That Dr. Henry Louis Gates was bringing to the forefront and all the scholars and the activists and the celebrities who were there we're bringing to the forefront this one through line in the black Christian tradition in the American context. This is something that Ida B. Wells portrays and that the black church documentary displays. It's something that's in our bones. It's something that we must recover. It is actually the fourth step as we talk about alignment, the fourth practice that we are going to discuss. And this practice is the practice of resistance. It is the practice of resistance. Why don't you type resistance in the comments? Now, I know that for some of you, and you can admit it, it's fine. You tilted your head to the side when I said resistance. He said, preacher, we talked about rest. 
We talked about gratitude. We talked about obedience, all good Christian things. But now you're talking about resistance. This gets out of the Christian faith. This gets out of the gospel. Now, this is a part of the world now, isn't it? It's a part of our society. It's a part of our culture. What does resistance have to do with the Christian faith? And if I were to give my definition of resistance, I would say that resistance is actually something that is deeply theological. It is deeply spiritual. Resistance is, catch this, rejecting what is or or what has always been in favor of what God says should be. Resistance is rejecting what is or what has always been in favor of what God says should be. You know, we talk a lot about the idea of righteousness in the Christian context, but righteousness and resistance must go hand in hand. Righteousness is about personal right living, and that's good. But you can't talk about righteousness without resistance. Righteousness and resistance are not in competition with one another. No, righteousness and resistance are complementary to one another. Righteousness cannot exist without resistance because you can't say yes to the right things unless you say no to the wrong things. <laughs> you can't say yes to the things of God unless you say no to the, to, to the things that are contrary to what God has called for us to do. It is hand in hand. You must say yes and no. And we talk so much in the American context and the Christian idea about righteousness, saying yes to certain things, doing the right things. But we don't talk enough about saying no to the things that would lead us away from what God has called for us to do. Resistance reminds us that God has always been on the side of those who society would like to forget. Where society has favored the mighty, God has favored the meek. Where culture has coronated the elite, God has elevated the uneducated. Where the world has wondered at the wealthy, God has blessed the lowly. Where others have become captivated by the powerful, God has compassion on the powerless. We serve a God who has set up an upside down kingdom. It's not the kingdom that benefits the people at the top. It's the kingdom of the resistors. It's the kingdom of those from the underside of society. It's the kingdom of those who will not go along with the status quo. It's the kingdom that favors not just righteousness, but also resistance, righteousness and resistance. And I want to encourage you, church, I want to develop today this muscle, this underutilized muscle of resistance. That we talk so much about righteousness, but if you're going to be a righteous believer, then you can't just say and do the right things. You must say no and step away from the wrong things. This could be personal in your own life. This could be in relationships. This could be systemically in society and in our culture. Whatever it may be, I want you to commit to resist. I want you to commit to resist the temptation to fall into what the culture says we are supposed to do. No, we are a peculiar people entirely. There is resistance in our bones. There is resistance to step away from what God has told us not to do. And Ida B. Wells and the culture of our faith and the biblical narrative, might I add, talks a lot about resistance. Daniel chapter three, it talks about this in the context of three very famous people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we are in Daniel, and in Daniel we're seeing this cycle that is played out over the course of the entire New Testament when it comes to God's chosen people. God's chosen people first experience fellowship with God, then they forsake God for idols, and then God is angry with them. And God sends down prophets to tell them of their idolatry. 
When they fail to listen to the prophets, then they are taken into captivity. And then judges or other prophets rise up to again proclaim the fact that they are being treated unfairly and also to remind the Jewish people to turn back to God. There is repentance from God's chosen people and then they are delivered from their captivity. And then when that judge or prophet dies, they forsake God again and the cycle continues, right? This is the cycle of the Old Testament chosen people. It's a cycle of all of us. And we're here because Daniel is writing about the overthrow of the Jewish kingdom by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And there are three things about this story that I think stand out to me. You're probably familiar with it in cartoon representations and portrayals. But there are three things that I think they're statements that are implicitly made by Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and Daniel. And these statements are statements that all resistors. Anybody who is concerned not just with righteousness, but also with resistance must make at some point in their Christian walk. The first statement is this. We won't change our culture to fit your comfort. We won't change our culture to fit your comfort. Of course, you know that in this context, if you're familiar with Daniel chapter three, King Nebuchadnezzar had erected a statue We'll talk a little bit more about that statue later, but he had erected something that was designed to bring worship to him, designed to bring attention to him, designed to bring honor to him. And in the context of this, the heralds make a declaration. The heralds say, and take a look at Daniel chapter three, verses four through six. Then the herald loudly proclaimed nations and peoples of every language. This is what you are commanded to do as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Here the heralds make a cross-cultural statement of conformity. They say, notice, no matter what tribe you come from, no matter what ethnic group you are a part of, no matter what socioeconomic status you have, no matter what language you speak, when you step in here, you must assimilate into what we have deemed to be acceptable. You must take your culture and rip your culture away from who you are so that you can be embraced fully by us. You can assimilate into what we consider to be righteous action. And here's where resistance comes in because this is a common practice of people who are colonizing or colonializing a particular area. The, the Babylonian people colonized this area and here's what they did. They picked the elite. That's how Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego even got there. Their names aren't even right. When we talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what we see here is their names were changed from Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In Daniel chapter one, it talks about how the King Nebuchadnezzar, he wanted for them to be seen as Babylonians now. He wanted for them to forget everything that they had learned from their God. He wanted for them to forget and act and eat and talk and consume food and information just like they did. 
Isn't it something that whenever we get into relationships where we don't have the power, whenever we get into situations where we are participants and not leaders, it seems as though people want to change the very fabric of our being. They want to change the very fabric, perhaps, of our spiritual identity. Young people face this all the time. We, as young adults, we are in situations and we feel the pressure to be and do and act like everyone else tells us to be, do, and act. But but I'm here to tell you something. If you're going to be someone who claims to be righteous, if you're going to be someone who claims to be on the side of God, then you must resist the idea of assimilation. You must resist the reality of people changing who you are and changing your ethnic group and changing your particular spiritual DNA in favor of what they think is right. Some of us need to step back and take inventory and audit of our relationships and say, has this relationship changed me fundamentally? Has this situation that I'm involved in changed me fundamentally? Has this friend group changed me fundamentally? You see, God cares about what makes you distinct. God cares about your personality. God cares about your ethnic group. God cares about your value system. God cares about the specific call that God has given to you. And some of us need to need to resist today. Some of us need to recover this muscle and say, I'm not going to change who I am for the benefit and comfort of other people. I'm not going to change who I am. They it's a it's a take it or leave it deal. They can like me as I am or they can leave me alone as I am. But you're going to get me as I am. Is anybody here saying you're going to get all of me? You're going to get me the same way if I'm at home, if I'm at work, you're going to get all of me. And what God calls for us to do, God calls for us to bring our full selves, calls for us to bring all of us. Again, this is not common in American theology. American theology pushes away from this idea. But be careful about environments, church, where you cannot bring your full self. Be careful about environments that cause you to edit parts of yourself. You as you are are beautiful, wonderfully made, fearfully made. You as you are have value. Your cultural way of expressing your personality, your loves, the things that frustrate you, the things that you're pushing for, that all has value in the kingdom of God. Don't change your culture to fit someone else's comfort. Not only this, but we see here that there's a second statement I think they're making in the context of this exchange between these Hebrew boys and the king. This is the second statement. It's, we won't alter our allegiance for your idolatry. We won't alter our allegiance for your idolatry. Here it's interesting because, again, they establish a statue. And this statue here, it's an image of gold. Take a look at what Daniel says about it in chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. For those who don't know the cubit measurements, that means it's about 90 feet tall. Think about that, 90 feet tall. And set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps and prefects and governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So here King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to receive worship. Here King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to get you to bow down to the image, the golden image that was made of him. Here King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to get you to look at that and see that as having intrinsic worth for you. 
Because here's the thing, everybody's doing it, everybody's participating in it. Now here, typically, here's what happens. I'm a preacher, right? And if you've been in church long enough, you know the preachers will say, whenever we get on the topic of idolatry, now I know nobody's actually going out and making a gold image. I know nobody in here is actually doing it. You know, we do that preacher thing where we do the disclaimer so that we can translate it from back then to now. But it's so interesting, church, because I was doing my research and a new story popped up. And I saw a new story and it was so interesting to me. It was so fascinating. And it seemed like I saw some people crafting a golden image this week, this week in America, y'all. Can you believe it? It was a golden statue that was crafted, made in Mexico, not in the United States, which is interesting all, all in, and, in and of itself, right? That's interesting all by itself. But it was a 200 foot, it was a 200 pound gold statue of the former president of the United States. And you know what struck me, church? I expect that from people who are not a part of the faith. I expect that from people who don't know the history of the Bible. I expect that from people who are not familiar with the Ten Commandments, but it's interesting because this particular 200-pound gold statue to a former president of the United States was actually in the presence of people who were considered to be good Christian folks. Good Christian folks with good Christian morals, go to good Christian churches, do good Christian things. And I said, how is it that nobody stood up and said, whoa, 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 we can't let this 200 pound gold image to someone who stands for a lot of the things we stand against or say we stand against. How are we going to let this be in a place where all these good Christians are? How are we going to let this be in a place where all the good Christians are hanging and talking about all our good Christian values and morals and all the good things that we've done? How can we allow a 200 pound gold statue to be in our midst? And, and, it, and, it, and it really hit me that we have a fundamental misunderstanding of what sin is. We have a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to have idolatry in our hearts. You see, I'm around a lot of good Christian people and it's good for us to be good Christian people. But here's the problem. We have to realize that sin, when we talk about it as good Christian people, sin is not just about an act. Sin is about allegiance. Sin is not just about what we do with our hands. It's about what we believe in our hearts. And there's a lot of people that would say, ain't no way I'm an idol worshiper. There's no way I believe in idolatry. There's no way I'm worshiping anybody. But here's the problem. Our hearts say something different. Because it's possible to have clean hands and still have a corrupt heart. It's possible for us to do the right things according to the big sins that we've said we'll never commit and still have corruption in the allegiance of what we are allied with. It is possible for good Christian people to say the right things and do the right things and believe the wrong things. You don't believe me? Ask Jesus. Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 5. This is what Jesus said. You've heard it said. Don't commit murder. But I tell you, I say unto you, if you hate your brother, if you have hatred of your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder anyway. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But if you look upon someone with lust, you've committed the act already in your heart. Church, how would our faith look different? How would our churches look different? How would our lives look different? If we spent less time auditing the actions of other people and more time examining the allegiances of our own hearts, 
What would it look like if there were a generation of Christians who stood up and said, I'm not going to be obsessed with what my neighbor is doing and the person across the street is doing and the person on television is doing. I'm going to get in my own prayer closet and do some excavation of my heart. I'm going to take a look at my heart to see if I'm worshiping idols that I shouldn't be worshiping. I'm going to take a look in my own life to see if I'm participating and bowing down to other things that I shouldn't be. I'm going to take a look in my own affections and see if I am obsessed with things that I shouldn't be. Is anybody hearing me today, church? Is this mic on? I hope that you know that it's not just about the acts. It's about the allegiance. That's why in Exodus 20, God says in the first two commandments, check this out. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse four says this. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in the heavens above or the earth below or in the waters beneath. You shall not bow down and worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And church, I want to tell you something. You have many valuable things, many valuable characteristics. But can I tell you what's your most valuable asset, your most valuable characteristic? Your worship. What you worship, what you are infatuated with, what you adore, what you bow down to, what you idolize, what you fantasize about is far more important. It is the root of every act you will commit. And church, I'm here to remind you, don't just audit the actions of someone else. Examine the allegiances of your own heart. I'm here to tell you if I were to put it another way, destroy your idols before your idols destroy you. Tear them down before they tear you down. Clean them out before they corrupt you. Throw them away before they trash your character. Tear down your idols. Tear down the things that you have lifted up. Resist. Resist the idolatry of the culture. Resist the idolatry of political power. Resist the idolatry of greed and money. Resist. And I believe that the Hebrew boys were trying to tell King Nebuchadnezzar, listen, we're not going to alter our allegiance for your idolatry. Is there anyone else here who's saying, I'm going to tear down my idols? Just wave at me in the chat. I'm going to tear down my idols. I'm going to examine my heart. I've looked at other people. I've pointed out what they've done wrong, but I'm going to start with me. I'm going to look at the person in the mirror and say, you know what? I have some things I have to tear down myself. I have some allegiances I have to audit myself. I'm going to destroy my idols before they destroy me. The third thing that I think that the Hebrew boys are trying to say, and this is very important, Believe that the Hebrew boys are trying to say, not just we won't change our culture for your comfort, we won't alter our allegiance for your idolatry, but number three, we won't forget our history. We won't forget our history. It's interesting because King Nebuchadnezzar says something fascinating. King Nebuchadnezzar says, in Daniel chapter three, starting in verse 15, King Nebuchadnezzar says, but if you do not worship the thing that I'm telling you to worship, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Catch this. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? What God's going to save you? What God is going to deliver you? It's a bold statement. It's a brash statement. It's a reckless statement. He's talking out the side of his mouth to God. You know why this is so funny? Because King Nebuchadnezzar is doing a little bit of spiritual theological erasure. Catch this because just 
just a couple of verses earlier, at the end of Daniel chapter 2. It seems as though there was a big shift because after the dream was interpreted and the prophecy was interpreted by Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar, he says this. Look at this, verse 47. Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. Wait a second, hold up. He just told the Hebrew boys what God gonna save you. But just a few verses earlier, he forgot all about that. And he tried to erase the God that actually gave him the prophecy that he's misapplying to create a golden image to himself. So why is it that King Nebuchadnezzar forgets? King Nebuchadnezzar completely missed the fact that there's a history involved. And I think, church, that if you're going to be a resistor, if you're going to stand for righteousness and resistance all in the same hand on, on both sides of the coin, I, I think you have to understand something. You can't forget your history. Ninety percent of the time I talk to you at some point in time, I'm going to tell you, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget your history. Don't forget those who have come before. Because it is easy for us to believe. It is so easy for us to believe that when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego stand before the king and you know what they say. They say, hey, king, it doesn't make any difference what you say. It doesn't make any difference what you decree. We're still not going to worship. We're still not going to serve you. We're still not going to bow down. It is easy to think that they are displaying some uncommon courage. It's easy to think, of course, they can do that because they're biblical characters. They're strong. They're anointed. They're not like us. They don't struggle with the same things we do. They don't have doubts like we do. And it's easy to mythologize the scriptures and miss the fact that maybe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't displaying uncommon courage. Maybe they had a common understanding of their history. Perhaps we don't understand that their bravery was connected to their history. Perhaps we don't understand that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were tapping into something that we all can tap into ourselves. Notice in Daniel, go here with me. In Daniel, Daniel is in the middle of the Old Testament, near the two-thirds mark of the Old Testament. But it's near the end of the chronological writings of the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament, the, the books in the Old Testament are not actually in chronological order, right? You know that. They're not all in chronological order. They're arranged in certain types of literature. And Daniel was actually one of the latest books written. And so what this means is this, these cream of the crop young men in Israel, these cream of the crop men who had been a part of this particular context and culture for so long were not foreign to the idea of what God was capable of. <laughs> what do you mean? I mean that they grew up hearing the stories about what God did. They grew up hearing the stories from their parents and their grandparents and their aunts and uncles and and the priests and the synagogue leaders about all that God was capable of. And it's funny because when I think about it, church, perhaps you've never noticed this. Perhaps you've never recognized this. But the threat that King Nebuchadnezzar levies against them doesn't have as much power as you think it does. Now, I know what you're thinking. If the threat is between my life and a blazing furnace, I'm choosing my life. If the threat is between my life and being burned alive, I don't want to get burned alive. But here's the thing. They knew a little something about God and fire. Do you remember what happened when they were leaving Egypt in Exodus? 
what does Exodus 13 tell us? That by day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night. Now, here's what scholars tell you. This is something you may not understand, but the Lord was in the fire. It's a theophany. It's a pre-incarnate representation of God, of the image of God in the midst of the fire. So here's the thing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego might have looked at the fire differently because they were connected to their history. Fire isn't as much of a threat when you realize God can inhabit it. Fire isn't much of a threat when you realize that God can take the threat, the thing that could harm you, and turn it around and sit in it with you. That's why King Nebuchadnezzar said, wait, hold up. We threw three men in there, and now it's a fourth man in there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood the history that God was capable of sitting in the fire with them. And if God is capable of sitting in the fire with me, why am I afraid of the threats that people would make when I decide to resist? Because God can sit in it with me. Are you hearing me, church? God can sit in it with me and inhabit the presence of the trouble that I think is going to take me over. Okay, you don't believe me. You don't believe me. A couple of years ago, I was in South Africa and I had the privilege of sitting in the same service as an international icon. I also had the privilege of shaking his hand. His name is Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And in 1984, Desmond Tutu won the Nobel Peace Prize for standing against the harmful, tragic, catastrophic conditions of apartheid, his home country of South Africa. And Desmond Tutu once told the story about the fact that he was preaching in a cross-cultural, multi-ethnic tent revival on the plains of South Africa. And he was preaching and that was illegal at the time of apartheid. And here's the interesting thing is, there were soldiers who came in with automatic weapons and they decided that they were going to disperse this particular gathering. And they said, y'all have to leave or we're gonna kill you. Now think about it, you're staring down the barrel of a gun. You're staring down your life here. Your life flashes before you. What would you do? Desmond Tutu doesn't do what we probably would have done. You know what he did? Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop, the great international icon, he laughed, not in a mocking, dismissive way, in a giddy way, excited, happy. He said, look, you've come to join the winning side. Here we have seats for you. Come and worship the living God with us. And you know what they did? I think they were just so shocked. They were just so surprised that they took off their weapons and sat down and worshiped. And some of them converted that day. Desmond Tutu understood something. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood something that apparently, church, we have forgotten when it comes to resistance. If we're afraid of getting in trouble for the things that we're resisting, if we're afraid of getting pointed out, if we're afraid of being marginalized, remember this truth. They can kill us, but they can't harm us. You didn't catch it. They can kill the body, but they can't harm the soul. And God can take the very thing that we're afraid of and inhabit that thing so that it doesn't take us under, but it propels us over. This is why Black History Month is so important. This is why I talk about it so much. See, because you have to understand you have a history of resistors behind you who took the very thing that the enemy or the people enslaving them had tied them down with and used it against them to preach freedom and justice. People like Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass said, okay, you're not going to let me learn how to read and write and spell. Well, I'm going to learn how to read, write, and spell on my own. And then I'm going to transform rhetoric 
to be a powerful vocal instrument so, can, so that I can preach freedom and justice for my people. People like Harriet Tubman who said, you've enslaved us to the land, but I'm gonna use the land against you so that I can transport my people to freedom. People like Rosa Parks who said, you've denied me the access to this particular section on the bus, but I'm gonna use that as a clarion call for justice and spark a movement of people who say, this is wrong, we can't do this anymore. People like Dr. King who said, I know the democratic principles have been used against me to enslave me, but I'm connected to history in a way that says even the things that you've used to enslave me, I can take and use against you to free me. Y'all you, you, so Bible, y'all biblical people. So let me show you some biblical examples here. Let me take it out of the cultural. Let me get biblical. What about Moses? Come here, Moses. The genocidal decree of Pharaoh, which should be used to take my life, is the very thing that puts me in a wicker basket and transports me to Pharaoh's house so that I can learn Pharaoh's system and eventually come back and say, Pharaoh, let my people go. Uh, come, come here, Esther. The fact that I'm enslaved and the fact that the, the colonialization takes place in my particular land gives me access to the king's court so that I can free and save my people. Come here, David. I'm standing against a giant, but what should crush me just makes him a bigger target for me to hit. Come here, Joseph. You meant it for evil, my brothers, but God can turn it around for my good. Come here, Jesus. The very cross that I was hung up on, the very cross that should crucify me, and invalidate my ministry is the same cross that I use for redemption and salvation. Is anybody listening to me here? If you know your history, you know that resistance comes from a line of people that have stood before and you can gain strength and power and hope from the fact that if God did it for them, the same God that did it then is the same God that can do it now. The same God that gave them the courage is the same God that can give me the courage right now. Is there anybody saying, I'm gonna remember my history, I'm gonna play it back on a loop, I'm gonna stand up for what's right, I'm gonna resist what's wrong, and I'm gonna live righteous. If that's you, why don't you put your hand up? Why don't you wave at me? Why don't you wave at me right now? God wants you to never forget your history, church. It's why our history matters. It's why understanding the Bible matters. Because what God has done for others, God can do for you too. Where are the resistors? Where is the resistance? Where is the clarion call for us to say we won't change our culture for anyone's comfort? We won't alter our allegiance for their idolatry. We won't forget our history. Where are the resistors, church? Where are the people in the line of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Who say, King, you can throw us in the fire. You can harm us. You can kill us. But ultimately, the God we serve, the God we serve will deliver us. The God we serve has given us the power to say no. God, we thank you. We love you. We acknowledge that you're good enough to allow us and give us the strength to resist. It's not just righteousness, it's resistance. It's not just saying yes to certain things, saying no to other things. And God, I pray that you give holy courage right now to your people, holy defiance to say no. I pray that for the first time, perhaps in a long time, there will be some people who utter the word no this week. That there will be some people who say, I'm not going to participate in this anymore. There will be some people who say no to the schemes of the enemy. 
because they recognize that there are some people who have come before that were bold enough to say no. And if they were bold enough to say no, then I'm bold enough to say no too. God, would you give us righteous hands and resisting hearts? God, would you give us a fully orbed, holistic view of the scriptures? God, would you help us to see how you yourself resisted the status quo? And God, would we stand unashamed, unapologetically, and say, I fear God so much, I don't fear any person. No matter what they may do to me, ultimately my life is in the hands of the only wise God. We thank you, God, that you have given us this beautiful heritage and lineage of resisting. I pray we walk in it, we'd follow after it, that we'd model this example. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, church. I pray you have an awesome week. We love you so much. We'll see you next Sunday. Well, hey, everybody, this is Pastor Tyler again. Thank you so much for tuning in to the NDCC online worship experience. So if you want to take a step in God, I want to pause here. You know, normally I just breeze through this and say, hey, you can just put home in the comments or text home to the number at the bottom of the screen. But I think there might be someone out there who genuinely wants to have an encounter with God who wants to make a decision to follow Jesus. If that's you, I just want you to lift up your hands right now. You can type home in the comments, but right now, first, I just want you to lift up your hands. And I just want you to say, even repeating after me, if that's you, if you say, God, I wanna give my life to you for real this time. I wanna follow you in everything that I say and I do, transform and change my life. Lift up your hands and say, God, come into my heart and save me. I repent of my sins. I repent of the way that I've been going, and I just want to follow you. Thank you for the example of Jesus. Thank you for what he's done on the cross. Thank you that he's an alive and risen, and thank you that I can make the choice to follow him. Come into my heart and save me. Transform me. Make me new. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer, we're so excited. We're proud of you. We want to celebrate you. We want to be excited with you and walk with you as well. You can type home in the comments or text home to the number at the bottom of the screen. It means so much that we're able to introduce Jesus to you. Once again, if you did not have the opportunity to give earlier in the service, you can do so in two ways. You can go to ndccpensacola.org and click offerings. Or you can mail it in to P.O. Box 6400, Pensacola, Florida, 32503. I hope to see you next week. And until then, be blessed, be safe, be healthy. We love you so much. Peace.